and welcome back to Breaking Ground on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. This week, I'm chatting to Paul Mitchell, a returning guest from Mitchell, uh, Mitchell McDermott. Paul, you're very welcome. Um, I, I tend to call on you whenever we see the, the construction industry in a state of crisis. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I looked at my notes and I saw it was last July that I was speaking to you last. So unfortunately, if we're speaking every six months, something is up. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case. Look, um, you might just you might just break down some because at the moment there seems to be a lot of almost conflicting headlines around construction and delivery, and maybe we're conflating the two issues. Um, so maybe can you talk to us about? really the the current state of construction i know that's a big question but uh, where are we as we as we enter into 2023 sure yeah um i, I might just touch on in, in inflation first because i think that's the burning question uh from everybody um our input cards that we produce each year or in some cases our inflation one is every six months are, are due out in, in a week's time um but uh, each year we we price the same office block each year and then you know during covid we started doing the same thing but in much more detail in in material wise with apartments and they so we've kind of concluded that for 2022 and what we've seen is that basically it was a year of two halves um on the apartment side we had inflation of just under seven percent in six months we had predicted six to seven percent for the year, and then we had it in six months. Um, and actually, the last time I was on with you in July, I said probably nine and a half percent for the year. Um, and actually, our figures have come out to nine point six percent for the year. Very close. So, so, so very much we had high inflation driven by the Ukraine invasion, um, and then we had plateauing in the second half of the year and reduction. Right. Now, interestingly, so 9.6% on apartments, which will cover any of that type of buildings, hotels, etc., offices, 12%, because it's more exposed to more expensive materials like glass, aluminium, steel, mechanical, electrical. So that's interesting. It, you know, it, the last two years is the first time we've actually started to kind of separate inflation into different building types. And, and we see that inflation is kind of over four areas, labor, material, supply demand and risk and supply demand is basically the supply of contractors and i'll, I'll come on to that but over 80 percent of the materials that we were tracking were either at zero percent or less than that in quarter four so i think that's positive news if we can talk about positive news in, in, in the market but a, a year a year of two halves that's it that's an interesting one when you hear it broken down because it seems to me that there are maybe separate conversations going on around labor and uh, so taking materials outside of it um labor uh, supply and demand and risk and risk when i speak to anybody in, within the industry risk is always the first thing they talk about because it seems to be a case of hot potato um nobody wants to be left holding things at a certain stage and while the government made some concessions last year um we which was a good leadership position to take whether it went far enough or not i, I suppose mm. is another point but um but has the private sector ha shared that approach uh, probably much more so okay uh, they'd have to um 
So the risk, the risk has shifted from contractors back to clients. So through contract clauses, through design responsibility, through inflation clauses, Ukraine clauses, energy clauses, got all these new clauses, which basically means if if something bad happens, you know, I'm not left with all of it. I might be left with some of it, or a client, you need to take that risk. And to be honest, that's prudent on behalf of contractors. You know, we, we've seen, unfortunately, a number of subcontractors, big subcontractors, go out of business last year, which is, you know, it's really sad to see. Um, and so they are being careful, and, and they should be, you know. Okay, um, but again, I suppose this is maybe for uh, new contracts. Where are we in terms of legacy contracts that are waiting, that are still in the process of being delivered? Those have had to, people have had to kind of say, look, I'm not entitled to it under the contract, but I'm struggling here. I've got five million of extra cost. I have no recovery under the contract, but, you know, I'm going to have to do something. Otherwise, I won't be able to deliver your building. And there's lot, lots of those very difficult. Uh, the smart clients are having rational discussions with their contractors because, you know, it's not of their making. Yes, they signed up to it, but if you force that, you, you would probably force that contractor out of business and then, you, then you're left with, you know, a semi-completed building. Now, contractors... You say, can, sorry, you just, you say the, the smart, uh, the smart uh, project owners are having these conversations. Is that typical in the marketplace? I would say it's typical. Uh, I'd say everyone's having the conversation. It's to what extent financially they're having the conversation. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think that's very mixed. There's no you know, every single project at different stages within the project is a different conversation. So, um, but, but I think generally there's an understanding out there that this is not just gouging. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling here and I myself could go out of business if you don't do something. And we um, is, that, is that feeding into, you know, there's a narrative at the moment around um, projects that have been granted planning but are not proceeding. Um, and, you know, you can break this down into the residential and commercial space or or really, I suppose, our immediate focus is, of course, on the residential. But have you any line of sight of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I did a, I was asked to do a, um, a presentation at the planning conference in early November. And that was one of the questions they asked before I went to, what do you want to know? Why is a commercial person speaking at a planning event? Um, they said, well, I want to know, why do we put all this effort into granting planning and assessing planning applications, granting permission, and then they just sit there? And the narrative out there is uh, developers hoarding land, they're greedy, they're trying to get the money, and, you know, they're just getting planning to add value and then not do anything. So what we actually did was we took all 457 planning applications under the SHD, that you know, was the old fast track method. And we went through all those as we do each year, but this year we added a, another piece on. We said we cross-referenced the ones that have planning with the ones with the BCMS to see what's actually started, plus our own knowledge, but to try and make it as evidence-based as possible. And then we went down through all those schemes, and what we found was that there's 29,000 units not started. Okay. So you said, that's a lot of units. They've got planning permission. Why haven't they started? So we went down through 88 schemes, 29,000 units. And that could be described that three quarters of that can be answered with four reasons. Okay. And the first reason is 
a third of it, or a third of those units that haven't started are regional apartments. Now, we struggle to get apartments to stack up in Dublin. Um, and so it's nigh and impossible. And these are schemes in Drogheda, Louth, uh, Kilkenny, Cork, Limerick, Galway, right? And we'll come on to Creek Honey, but that was set up to address that. So a third of them regional apartments, 17% of them site sale, right? So someone had the site and they sold it. Now, either they flipped that site for planning gain, or they sold it, and I can see it some of it, they sold it because they couldn't actually fund it or deliver it. 17% viability and 10% were recent grants. So that's three quarters of it. And there are other reasons some of them started, some of them were in JR, but actually came out again. And some of them, 15%, um, we have TVA. There's no reason that we can see why they haven't commenced because they're housing schemes. In some cases, the developer has a number of housing schemes, so they're only getting to the end, so there's a delay in that point. But I think one, one point to add, in our info card that's coming out, we actually just put in a program to say, if you have a scheme of 150 apartments, it takes about four years to get from site purchase to your first apartment been delivered. That's with no planning delays and no JR, right? Four years. So it, it takes, but I, I think that, that piece, and we'll publish this, but it debunks that theory that all developers are sitting on all land and just waiting for money. And that's that's fact-based. And I actually presented that at the at the planning conference, which was which was interesting to see. Um that's an interesting one. When you talk about 17% viability, that's in as a separate issue to one third of them being regional apartments, because we know there's viability issues uh, impacting yeah. regional apartments. So are you saying that the other 17% viability issues are pertaining to housing? Uh, they are all either student apartments or housing uh, within, within the SHD. Um, so, and to be honest with you, that percentage is just going to significantly increase. Growth. And I mean, you talk about four years where there are no planning delays and uh, no JR, but and obviously I know from your own data that the proportion of JRs um, in the first four years of the scheme was shockingly high and it's you know it's something that gets talked about a lot in the media and we know that there's changes um but obviously a board panola has been really i, I i'm not sure the most dip, uh, diplomatic way to describe it but it's certainly been in turmoil um since the changes uh were touted around uh jr so where does that leave where does that leave the the uh industry at the moment what options does it have i think the that there's two, there's an interesting point on, on two of those things that you mentioned. So JRs last year, 58% of planning permissions last year were caught in JR, right? 14,500 units. And what would you what would you think if I was to ask you, Carol, to switch this interview back? Would you think it's higher or lower or the same this for 2022 in terms of the percentages of JR? Oh. I'd imagine it's much higher because the public is riled up. Uh, you know, we see it across our own placemaking endeavour. So I would imagine it's much higher. And unfortunately, if we were to continue in the way we're going, it would continue to get higher. P planning is a public function, um, but the public has never been so engaged as they are now. So uh, am I right? Well, I would I would have been of exactly the same opinion of you as you. And it's and not. It's not. Why, what's the explanation for that? Well, well, it's tied up with two things, right? 
because the other big shift since last year is that 58% of last year's planning applications are still sitting to be decided upon. 58%, right? So there's 29,000 units, right? That have yet to be decided upon by the board. Now, this is the point at which I kind of go, we've got lots of problems in this industry. We know all about Warp Planola, and I think it's it's a real shame, right? And it'll be fixed, right? We'll get through it. But here is something that with an investment can be sorted, right? Can we go to the Irish planning consultants and second people in for six months? Can we go to the UK and bring in a team and bring in 10 or 20 people and clear this backlog? Like there is a shocking waste of value happening in the market because planning isn't being delivered. And that to me is not tied up with the attorney general. It's not tied up with the governance of the board. It is resource. And to me, I just, that, that bit there is an issue. Um, Paul, I've had conversations with planners who would not take that position irrespective of the pay that was on offer. Well, at that planning conference, and I was, in a, I was in a space that I'm not usually in, but I was talking to people that I'm not usually having those conversations with, and it was an eye-opener for me. And an assistant planner of a big council said to me, I said, that seems to be good news about the board positions. She said, everybody wants to work for the board. Right? Now, I, that's, that's as much information as I know. Right? And Great. That's what we need. That's what yeah. we need. But unfortunately, on the ground... The, uh, the the body is so damaged yeah. that people are concerned about their careers and not only that but actually there was a lot of muckraking uh, and very yeah. personal things yeah. not many people will put themselves in the line of fire for that yeah yeah no and, and there is that but I, you know we'll get through that right and i think that's that's short term and we'll get through it and it's a crying shame but you know but like the fundamentals there and and the problem is this change is mixed with the rise in interest rates, with the exit of the funds. Uh, there's a number of things coming together, again, to stop units being delivered. Now, this is where I think we need like a two-year emergency, right? It has to be treated like there's lots of meetings going on. The Taoiseach was meeting last Tuesday with lots of industry bodies and the Housing Commission the week before, right? The first day back after, after the Christmas break on that Tuesday, met with the Housing Commission. But it has to be an emergency. We're running a budget surface, right? We need money. The industry needs money. And forget all this negative narrative about developers and cuckoo funds and all that kind of stuff. We need housing, right? We've got a viability issue. The country has funds. We can't invite people into this country because they've got nowhere to live because the prices are too high, right? You know, this is very much, this can be worked through. It takes time and it needs a politician that will stand firm and not cancel co-living and not cancel bill to rent because there's so much political pressure. It just needs an emergency and it needs that big investment and it needs it now. And these kind of things should be just pushed through. Paul, that, that's so compelling when I hear you say that. And, and I feel like it's something that there are certainly branches of government and opposition that would, would back that. But then, uh, right, so we get the resources. Do our contractors have the capacity to deliver? That is, you know, um, that's the next challenge to be overcome, 
Um, like we added 25,000 workers last year, according to the CSO, right? Very welcome. But from, from what I see on the ground and from what our business sees on the ground, it's an industry still constrained, right? I do not see, we do not have contractors knocking down our doors looking for work, right? We are knocking their doors. And we're knocking on the same doors for different projects every other week, right? Because we don't have the new blood in the marketplace, right? We've got a, a new change since probably yesteryear. The larger contractors, maybe from 100 million up, have you know anything from 10 to 50% of their work overseas now. They've said, we're not going to get caught like others and like we got caught the last time. We're going to have... Uh, you know, a pressure release valve. And they've done very well. Are they going to take projects here that are kind of just about, you know, the viability and the client doesn't have the money to pay? Or are they going to build data centers in Norway? Okay. So that's an issue. And I think the COVID interruption is still affecting, you know, the subcontractor supply chains. So I think be careful what you wish for. We could get all these plannings through and do everything we said with the two-year emergency. But the contracting space is also an emergency, right? So where are we? Where is your country needs you? You know, signs over in Australia and America and Europe and the UK. Like we should be trying to get our people from the, from the back from the UK, right? Where things aren't as rosy and they're going through the rocket patch. Give them an incentive to get them back into the country, right? And just wrap the whole thing up together. That's that's what's needed. That's why that two-year emergency to focus on all of those things at the same time is needed. And um, Paul, it, it occurs to me that we could almost take this conversation full full loop and come back to risk, because obviously if we're making it a more attractive environment for contractors, then actually it's not just a case of bringing back people to work, but actually maybe um, for new contractors, because we see that, you know, there's a cohort of successful contractors now who are probably in the mid-level, who all started between 2008 and 2011. So maybe this is the time for the next the next generation of contractor who are coming into the market at a time when arguably we have a more sophisticated client, arguably a more mature supply chain um, and a better risk profile in terms of contracts than we've had for decades. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like Ireland is not alone. Part of the study, we're doing this international cost benchmarking study at the moment for, for the government. And um, you know, talking to people in in lots of other countries, right? And I spoke to this chap about that had a German commission on the reduction of construction costs, and it happened in uh, 2014, 2015. And they spent two years working on this, and they came up with 71 recommendations, 16 of which were implemented, and costs went up. And in that conversation that I had with this economist, right, you could interchange the word Germany for Ireland in any of it. You could do the same in the States. The last five days been involved in something in the, in the States. And you can interchange the words. Like affordability, social housing, cost rental, construction costs, viability. Everybody has the same issue. And, and Ireland is, you know, not alone. And I think, to be honest, we're doing a lot of things right in this country. A yeah. lot of things right in the construction industry. Um, our health and safety, our building control. People are now, the UK and other European countries are trying to copy us in what we're doing, which is which is great to see. But 
but that piece about dragging people back, I think, is and and growing those new band of contractors, I think, absolutely. And um, Paul, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I always learn so much from you. Uh, before we finish up today, you know, I, I think you made a very compelling call for this, uh, really, a, a, an emergency to be called. Yeah. Um, but what are your expectations? Uh, what, not not necessarily what you'd like to see, but what are your expectations of twenty twenty three? For the industry, I think I think the I think the LDA are going to play a major role. I think the one gap uh, is funding. So people people have lost their exit, a fund, buy something or rent something, and people have lost their and lost their funding. I think the bigger developers who are funded are going to take over. I think the smaller developers or developers who are without funding are going to have their sites purchased off them. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the residential zone land tax will do. I think that's going to cause lots of problems. I think we're just going to have lots of legal cases. And I don't know if you have a, a site that hasn't got planning, I'm sorry, that has planning, but is not viable. And next thing you're going to be charged 3% per annum from the 1st of January, 2024. I just think it's going to make the situation worse. I think it will come around, but I think this year, people are still going to work through what they have. They're going to get out of the COVID projects, as I call them. I think the government will make interventions. I hope they make deep interventions on funding and exits. Um, but they also need to address the supply side. And I think we will be, we won't see corrections from a cost, but we'll see plateauing, we'll see general reduction. I don't see think we'll see a major correction until quarter four of this year. And I don't think it'll be a major correction. I think there'll be a correction in pricing only if the interventions haven't been made and schemes stop being built. Only then will we will we see kind of a change in, in the cost side. But we do need to see it. Paul, I could talk to you all day uh, and, I, and I feel there's so much more that we could say, but that's all we've time for today. Thank you so much. Plenty of food for thought there. Um, I appreciate it always. And also you mentioned at the top of the interview, those info cards. So your new versions are due out um, next week. So I'd recommend that people take a look at those. I know we we ourselves and we have clients who use them like a Bible um, stacked stacked on, uh, printed, printed and put on the desk. There's very little mm -hmm. gets printed now, uh, but they get printed. So thank you so much. That was Paul Mitchell of Mitchell McDermott. And that's it from us this week. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. As always, my thanks to the Hear Me Roar production team and to Luke Delaney on sound for Dublin South FM. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>